Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Regulations can be incredibly burdensome to companies operating globally. Managing workers and their pay across countries with very particular regulations can be extremely difficult. Yet, as the world is increasingly technologically connected and remote work has taken off, the workforce is likely to become even more internationally interconnected for companies. Anat Gez, the co-founder and CEO of Papaya Global, explains how Papaya's platform simplifies payroll complexities and automates procedures. On this episode of Future of Tech, Anat also gives straightforward takes concerning difficulties and successes in her entrepreneurial career and offers advice to those who may wish to follow in her footsteps. Additionally, Anat shares her passion for supporting women on their career journeys and for having diversity in the workforce. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. And today I'm very happy to have uh, Inat Gez, co-founder and CEO of Papaya Global. Hello, Inat. Hi, Vishai. And let's start with what I'm always uh, like to understand is how did you find yourself working in a high tech or in the technology sector as a whole? So I'm a geek, I think, from a very early stage. I'm not the type of the geek that actually learned how to code or develop. So I don't know how to do it. Never knew and probably won't know this lifetime. Uh, But I always was very fascinated by technology as a user and early adopter of of quite a lot of things. And I always knew that I want to have my own uh, business. I mean, this was my kind of intent from the very early uh, days. And when I I finished my military service. I joined uh, services companies and did eight years with them, mainly working in developing countries. At the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I wanted to pursue my dreams and to start my own business. And I really wanted to start a startup because at the time, all of my friends, all over me, everyone was running a startup and their life seemed so cool to me and so fun. I said, okay, I have to do it. Not the best timing to start a startup at all because the market kind of crashed. So we started working on something. We needed to shut the doors even before we started because we realized that we won't be able to receive any funding. And then I ended up starting my first company, which was a service company. And then I started another company, which was another service company. 
So the first one was in Israel, dealing with global mobility and relocation. The second one was in Asia, at China at the time, dealing with global extension, and, and then in a few other countries in the continent. What I, I realized is I really liked the domain, but I really wanted to scale what I'm doing. And I wanted to go back to the technology aspect. So for me, it was kind of stepping in, in quite a lot of fields before I was able to start and establish my, my own startup and pursue this very old dream. Throughout those years that you've mentioned, most of the activities are related to HR activities. Do you have any HR background? In Israel, I think many things are defined by the way that the army categorizes you. So my military service eventually ended up, uh, I've been a lieutenant in the F-16 squadron, and I was dealing with all of the logistics and HR of the squadron. So I think that the, the army kind of shifted my way to the HR space, but I always liked the operational part of HR more than the HR itself. So this is where I always land eventually. You know, if someone would ask me, what are the characteristics of uh, a geek? I would never say logistics, HR, and uh, F-15 squad. I would uh, look into <laughs> a different background. But uh, so at, at what point did you decide that there are areas within the HR processes or, or the overall processes that you want to try and uh, mechanize, automate, address? At what point did you understand that this is something that you want to pursue? So after dealing with the domain for 10 years, you realize that any country that you step, any type of workforce management that you do, you end up with very, very manual processes. And when you ask people, they said, yeah, it is what it is. It's a nightmare. I mean, there is no other way. Somebody even told me, yeah, we tried technology. It did not work for us. We decided to leave it aside and to keep the manual processes. And this was always a concern. And I was kind of going around with myself as well, saying, how come there is no good solution? I mean, obviously, I think that humanity did much bigger things than solving HR payroll problems. And I think that the reason that there weren't any good solutions is just lack of attention. Or as one of the very early investors that I spoke with, told me when we send them the deck, he said, I mean, it might be a fascinating business. It's so boring for me to read the deck that I'm just going to skip. <laughs> so I, I think that currently the last decade is a bit more open to understand the technology not necessarily needs to be cool or fascinated. The majority of technology that you really need in your life are the one that is taking the very boring task away from your desk, making you more efficient and, and making things happen. I was always kind of struggling to see how do we create this? How do we bring more efficiency and how do we make payroll just a much more pleasant experience to people? Just as a level set, can you like in few words explain what payroll is all about when you define, you know, we need to, to address this topic? Yeah. So payroll, from my perspective, is the most complex business process in the organization because it's repeatable. It goes, you know, to everyone that is in the organization. And eventually, what you're doing in payroll, you are taking three aspects of uh, items and you need to consolidate them together and to calculate them per the individuals. So we have your contract, right? This is all of the agreements and the terms that I have with you. And then you have legal uh, aspect and regulations. I might need to pay you pension funds and severance and other benefits that are coming from regulation and labor laws that are related 
to your nationality. And then there are the variables items. So you can report expenses, you can report time off, uh, you might be entitled to a commission and so on. And it always needs to happen on a very, very short time frame, accurately, obviously, on a very changing environment, right? Because taxes can change, regulation can change, your personal status can change. And this is a recurring business. So when you're looking on payroll, you have about 10 different data streams that are sending over information to you. New hires, termination, this one is on leave, this one has PTO. And normally when you are looking at that, it's a super manual process. You have one people trying to overcome this all information, trying to understand this because I might understand very, very well Israel payroll. But then if I manage people in the UK or in Australia, so I don't even understand the term. I don't understand what 401k means. So I don't understand what superannuation means, but they're all eventually means pension funds. And I don't understand the rules that they need to comply according to the country. And this is what makes payroll very complex. And when you are working on a global environment, even more complex. Interesting. What is Papaya all about? So Papaya is all about taking this endless payroll process and creating one way of managing payroll in the organization, wherever you work. So eventually, Papaya's platform streamlined the whole process from onboarding to the payroll processing itself, the accuracy and validity of the data per compliance, per the reporting that we have through the payment process. So in every single point here, we, we are actually taking away a lot of data processes uh, and manual data aspects that there is currently in the process and redoing uh, them automatically, creating a very high level of accuracy and certainty to the organization that the payroll is correct, and just basically saving them tons of time and making it much more efficient and much more secure as well, I have to say, because payroll is also the most sensitive data in the organization. A bit off track, but where did the name come from? I think this is the one question that I've been asked uh, on a daily basis. So eventually we are payment enabler, okay? And Papaya has the word payment. It says the same in 80 countries. So eventually this is very similar to what we are doing. We are taking a process, respecting the local aspects of it, but consolidating it and streamlining the whole process into one consolidated action. So Papaya is kind of our nice way to deal payroll globally under one uh, platform. And I think it's much happier than I would just, you know, invent a payroll platform or so uh, names. We are trying to keep the payroll team cheer always with everything that we are doing. For sure, Papaya is a better name. Yeah, it's a good choice. Now, during the years after you founded the company, you've mentioned the fact that you were struggling with uh, different regulations. Any other challenges that you, you uh, faced? which are related to region or country or stuff that is not the same around the globe? Quite a lot. I think that you don't understand the difficulties that you're going to have. Uh, just a very small nuance that we had ourselves, but then we realized that a lot of our clients have. A bit after we started, the UK enforced mandatory pension scheme in the country, which was new at the time. But in fact, a lot of, of companies worked in the UK and were not local companies. And at the time when they enforced it, you couldn't pay to the local pension fund, uh, funds in the UK without having a local bank account. 
So you had this crazy thing where you need to pay something and you cannot do it because you don't have a local bank account. Setting up a local bank account can take tons of times if you are a foreigner company eventually and you are not established in the UK. So it's kind of a chaos. It ended up, I mean, I remember it was so surreal that we had one employee, we needed to contribute $100 to his pension and we paid the third party about $300 per month in order to make it happen to his bank account. So those things, eventually you, you end up understanding that regulation is very local. Unfortunately, the world does not think global when they enforce regulation. Even more, unfortunately, I think that Israel, when we're seeing how hard it is to work in Israel as a foreigner company, it makes us wonder if somebody ever thought when they were defining the rules and definitions about a use case that will bring foreigner companies here. And all of those things, those local challenges, when you are incorporated in the country, you don't think about it. I mean, they are still hard. I mean, still take time, but they're not impossible. Uh, when you are stepping into a new country, they can be impossible. You've mentioned that uh, in your career, you founded several companies at the beginning, service-oriented and later on product-led. Is there a difference between uh, founding a, a service-oriented company and a product company? Huge. First, there is a difference on the basic fact that uh, you need to think about how you are becoming a profitable business from the very early days when you have a service company. So you don't have this privilege of uh, building on growth. First, normally you don't have investors. So, I mean, you are on your own and you need to be very, very cautious uh, with expenses comparing to the revenues and so on. And obviously, eventually at the end of the day, you are the one that's going to sleep with the troubles. And you know that if you don't have enough money in the bank, this will be your own liability. You still, it's still your employees. So I think thinking P&L wise, it's a completely different uh, thinking. And I think that eventually when I see a lot of startup today, this is the first advice that I give them. I mean, it's okay that currently you don't think about it, that you are busy with growth and scaling and so on, but one day it will arrive. And one day, I mean, you won't have endless funding in the bank account. You'll need to show profitability. You'll need to show much healthier metrics. So think about it, plan this. I mean, assure that you understand how to get there. The second thing that is very different is that when you have an operational business, it's all about the here and now. I have a problem, I need to solve it. I'm doing it here and now. One thing that I personally had the biggest struggle, and for me, that was the biggest changes in the mindset when we started Papaya with my uh, co-founder, which both came from quite a lot of experience in establishing tech companies, is the scale thinking. So you are not building a system to solve today's problem. You're not building a system to hire the 100 employees that you currently need to hire. You are building a system that can hire the 10,000 employees. It takes you more time, which for me was the biggest struggle. I'm a very here now, let's solve things. Let's find immediate solution person. So the change in the mindset and understanding that building technology actually takes much more time than solving operational problem on the spot is a very, very big difference. Yeah, as a former founder of a service company, I can uh, completely agree with you. I think the uh, burden on your own shoulders when it's your money and, uh, and you are responsible for uh, others' uh, salaries, it's a big, big difference, and I completely agree. Can you share some moments in your career that uh, that were hard 
Sure. I mean, I think that those moments are important. Obviously, I mean, you don't like them, but it's part of the way you can't avoid them as well. So I can share two. One of them for my early days as an entrepreneur on my first company, as, as we mentioned, the service company. After a few years of uh, running the business myself, I decided that the next growth chapter will be with a partner. So I sold some of the shares in the company to a partner. It was completely my own uh, responsibility. He had the options. He had some um, clauses that allow him to sell me back the shares two years after if we don't meet specific uh, business criteria. Uh, my lawyer was very against. I said, okay, if I'm going to take this uh, partnership, so I mean, I'm all in. This is how I do things. So if I believe that we're going to meet this, we're going to meet this. And eventually, although we met the business criteria, I mean, they wanted to get out from the contract. It was not a good partnership as it, we intended to be. And I didn't have problem with the decision. I had problem with the way. It started a very ugly argument, you know, as I mean, some kind of ugly divorce argument, I would say. And this was the moment in my career when I was kind of thinking to myself, how come I took a very healthy business that I built my own? This was my sole decision to bring in a partner. And now, I mean, this decision is actually causing me tons of headache, tons of risks to the ability to continue and run the business. And I really hated the situation. I, I really dislike the fact that I took this decision to start with and that I did not uh, listen to the, my lawyer a few years uh, earlier when he told me that this is not uh, something that I should agree to. The lesson is think about the worst case scenario. I'm a very optimistic person. I think that you have to be an optimistic person in order to be an entrepreneur. But the reason that you sign legal agreements and you take lawyers is not because you want to eventually take care of the day after, right? Because the day after when you sign a partnership is always a happy day. You're good friends, go on and so on. You're making a, a great business growth plans and so on. This is for the dark days or for the worst case scenario. So if you are taking lawyers and people to kind of protect you from the worst case scenario, be able to assure that you understand the risks and kind of deal with the consequences on the worst day scenario as well. And I think this for me was the hardest lesson or the one that I always don't like, because as I said, I mean, I'm a very optimistic person. If I decide to do something, I'm, I want to believe that this is the right decision. I'm not looking for the plan B. So this was the first lesson. The second lesson for me was the very hard experience that I had raising funds during my pregnancy. So we were looking to raise our Series A at the time. We had amazing growth metrics and all of the initial calls, the Zoom calls with investors, it was pre-COVID. So initial calls were on Zoom, but then they expected you to come and meet them in the barrier or in the space. And I ended up three weeks roadshow with the world's greatest investors, eventually hearing no after no after no. And I knew that the only reason is the fact I came with five months pregnancy belly at the time that didn't really meet their expectation. And for me, this was kind of a very biggest moment of failure because I literally felt that my personal decision to have a kid uh, will fail the company. Lucky enough, Two months after giving birth, we were able to complete our Series A round, very large round at the time. But uh, obviously, this was a very bad feeling as an entrepreneur. 
So I'd like to, to tap into it and to ask you a few more questions about the fact that you are a successful woman and you raised a lot of money. Obviously, you share this experience. Did you ever experience the opposite, that being a woman helped you to uh, succeed and raise either more money or, or reach higher peaks? No, I don't think that being a woman helped me, I mean, on the contrary side, to do things or to achieve things. I think that being a woman helped me maybe internally in the company, building a more, a better culture and eventually being able to bring papaya to the fact that we are a very diverse organization, that we keep a very healthy ratio of men and women also on the leadership and so on. But no, unfortunately, I don't think that I can state any benefits from this on, on the investment side. I'm a strong believer in diversity, but I would love to hear your points about why is it so important. First, I think that in general, when you are building a company, you're always starting with a very small team and you don't know what you don't know. You have this idea in mind and so on. And if you keep the same people in the room, the one that looks like you, thinks like you, that eventually you all have exactly the same opinion, you probably think the same and so on, you're probably going to miss tons of stuff. You're going to miss a lot of stuff in thinking about the market. You're going to miss a lot of stuff of how you build things. You're going to miss a lot of stuff in communication. So diversity is a key in general. Second, I think that uh, men and women, you know, we are different creatures in many uh, aspects. Eventually, when you are trying to keep equal gender environment, it just allows people to be better, that they're better self and to respect other better. So I think that eventually everyone is contributing and enjoying from this. I hate the feeling that people are inviting me to conferences and I know that the only reason that they're inviting me is just because they need to kind of keep the ratio up or to say, oh yeah, we have some women in the room and I know that I'm going to be uh, the sole woman or, or uh, the minority in the room because this is not a feeling that you want to be. You want to be in a place that respects you and you want to be in a place with people that you feel that some of them uh, share your own opinion, some of them are different, but I mean, eventually this is what creates much more healthier organizations. I must say that uh, I fully agree with you and, and uh, wholeheartedly. Now, I know because I've read about you also inspiring and supporting young women for leadership and other roles. Can you share more about it? Yes. So... I think first, generally, tech founders, uh, we have a rare opportunity to make changes. And the fact that I can now decide or drive the organization to take decision and to eventually to impact some uh, people and uh, have more diverse, as we said, environment, but also impact the younger generation is a huge blessing. And it's something that I really like about the fact that I'm able to do uh, in my day-to-day. -day. I'm lucky to be part of uh, an amazing initiative called Breaking the Glass Ceiling, led uh, by uh, Allianz, which eventually what we're doing is we are mentoring high school uh, girls where they already have very high uh, grades in uh, STEM um, educations, but we are encouraging them not to drop because in reality about more than 50% of them will drop during high school because they will feel a pressure from home. They will feel a pressure from a kind of outside pressure not to invest heavily in their studies. 
that this is not a feminine thing, this is not cool, and so on. So we are mentoring them. We are showing them eventually that their ability to have a very, very good education currently or, or to graduate from high school with strong um, grades in uh, mathematics, in, in computers, in science, and so on, can impact their future. This plan, we are running it in some uh, cities that uh, are not uh, Tel Aviv and Herzliya and are less, uh, a, a bit a harder environment in terms of opportunities. And this can really change their life. I think that the one thing that we have in Israel, which is amazing, is the ability to get people into the army and give them an education or give them the opportunity to blend in amazing units that will eventually impact their whole career. This is beautiful. And thank you for doing it. Now, beside being a founder, you're also a CEO. Can you share some of the tips and in a way also challenges of being a CEO? If someone listens to us, what are the things to watch out for? And what are the qualities that you believe they should uh, embrace? I'll share my experience. I think that I'm a bit different CEO than ever because I'm uh, very, very, very involved in everything. I don't say that this is the right way. This is only the one thing that works for me. But I do believe that as a CEO, you need to have the ability to understand what's going on in the organization. You need to have the ability to kind of point out on every single time where are the challenges or what are the things that you need to solve. It can be definitely, I mean, people in leadership, but also processes and automation and scales and so on. And in order to do so, you need to be in the details or you need to have a good controls on the details. So I'm a very detailed person. So I normally very much involved on, on the bits and the bytes of the organization, probably too much, but this is my way to gain confidence and, and to understand how to take business decisions. And the second thing that I think that every CEO should do is invest 20 or 30% from his time or her time in strategy, not on the here and now, but of where this company needs to be in a year time, two years time, three years time, and what we need to do currently in order to make it happen. Because if you don't invest in the future, you won't get there. I mean, you, you'll stay in the past and the past will become less relevant and eventually people or other companies will just start to, to bypass you in terms of technology, in terms of their ability to scale, in terms of the go-to-market. So this is a very, very strong focus. It's hard because you always kind of struggle. You never have enough time. You always have things that needs your attention now, but you really need to keep it. Now, we are in the uh, unicorn season, and I would like to pick your brain about what are the ingredients that led your company or you believe a successful company needs to have in order to reach a big evaluation or, you know, become a unicorn? So I think that there is one thing that always led us and is the ability to set goals and to reach them, set very aggressive growth goals. So every year we started with a very ambitious plan of growth and AOR. And I mean, I always wanted to assure that my senior leadership really believes in, their, in these goals. So it's not that I'm presenting the goals and I'm saying, okay, this year we're going to reach $100 million in ARR. And then they're all leaving the room and said, okay, she's crazy. We'll never get there. Maybe we'll get 30 and, and we'll be happy and so on. So we are not starting a year. We are not leaving the room until we are all convinced that we can do that. 
And we never failed until now. And I hope not to fail again, not to fail in any forecast that we gave. And from my perspective, uh, this is the one thing that eventually lead your growth because growth not just happen. I mean, you don't get unicorn startups because they just deliver it on the street. Maybe the, the bar is getting lower. Maybe, I mean, uh, investors are believing in your ability to grow, but eventually this is what they're looking. The ability to grow year over year, very aggressively, and also the ability to gain the confidence that the organization feel that they can achieve it. It's not by coincidence. It's not just happen. You know how to do it. Now, I'd like also to ask you maybe kind of the opposite. What not to do in order to become a very successful company? What to try and avoid? What to try and avoid is eventually not keeping your focus because you will always have those distractions. Other business ideas, some uh, compelling offers, some uh, business development, some great things that you think that, yeah, we should do this and this and this and that. And eventually, focus is the one main thing that you need to keep. And uh, not being on focus, this is the one thing that you need to avoid. Because we all know that eventually there is as much as we can complete. I mean, you can't do everything. You can't start sales organization in 10 different uh, languages, in 10 different territories. You cannot start 10 business lines. You need to stay focused. And it means that you are getting uh, very rough decisions because, I mean, you are deciding to do something and not to do something else. And this is okay. You need obviously to get the right decision or to try to get the right decision. But this is one thing. The other thing which goes along with it is you need to avoid staying in places where you know you made mistakes as quick as, as possible. Uh, we always have this way or willing uh, or, or desire to try and um, correct things. We know that they're not going to the right way, but we give, it, we give them another chance and we say, okay, eventually you know best. I mean, if you understand that you did a mistake, it can be a hiring mistake, it can be a commercial mistake, it can be a product mistake. Just fix it. Just throw everything to the garbage as soon as quickly and eventually start over because every day that you're going to spend on designing the wrong product is a day that you did not spend designing the right product. So even if it's a very painful uh, to the organization, even if it means that you are pivoting after spending a long time, there is no emotional decision here. It's very, very pure decisions. If you think that this is a mistake, you already have the signals. Don't wait until it will going to be too late and until everybody's going to shout, this is a mistake, because then it's going to be too late. You've mentioned through this discussion of ours many times, the fact that you need to take a lot of decisions, probably you need to work around the clock to make things happen. How do you maintain work-life balance? I don't. <laughs> this is the, the simple truth. I mean, I'm sorry. I have nothing good to say about my work-life balance. It's very, very, very bad. Okay. It's <laughs> at least an a honest uh, answer. When you look into the future of Papaya in terms of challenges you're facing, what is the next frontier beside growing your revenues and ARR? So... We are in the era currently that we are taking payroll and eventually building everything around that because we believe that if you have a good data flow from the payroll, you can build great analytics, you can build great efficiency in the organization, you can build automation. So we are eventually transforming payroll to be a, the Salesforce for workforce. And it creates a lot of opportunities. It creates opportunities to understand 
salaries better and benchmarks. It creates a lot of opportunities to understand budgeting better. And it creates a lot of opportunities, obviously, also to have a lot of other supportive uh, tools to the remaining of the organization. So we just started, I mean, our journey in terms of innovation and payroll. I think that this is not, we are not close to an end here. This is really the first step. The global aspect is always challenging because you want to create consistency, but second, it's very, very different. So we need to respect every different system method and and payroll method globally. So we have a lot of uh, brain from our perspective to bring into this uh, area and just to make payroll seamless for organization globally. Do you see the way we work being changed in the future? Or it's more or less the same? Or I think it's already changed. So we are currently designing or renovating a new office for Papaya. And I've been asked, how do I see this office? And I say, it's not an office any longer. This is a space where people come because they want to have a nice place to work. I mean, they want to hang out with people. They need to attend meetings. But I don't see it as this is my uh, desk, this is my chair, I'm going to sit here and work. I think that you're going to come to the office when you have an intent to do things in the office or when you have intent to meet people, both socially and both for uh, work purposes. But I think this is not going backwards any longer. I mean, I think we already kind of changed the way that we work in this aspect. If you look into your, again, experience and all the challenges you've mentioned and, and the funds that you've raised and the pitfall that you needed to come out of, would you recommend a journey of being an entrepreneur to others? I think you need to like it. Like many other things, some people are addicted, some people will hate it. It's very similar to do extreme sport, right? Because you know that you're doing something super dangerous. There are some those moments when you're doing it that you think that you are the most stupid person on earth and why are even you're doing it but then you're doing it again and again and again so it's kind of the same i love it i love the fact that we have the ability to reinvent an industry to leave an impact to do a lot of things around this also in just the, the company journey itself obviously i don't like the pressure and sometimes i just feel that i just want to have three days off, no phone calls, no emails, nothing. I mean, just to be no one in the world and, and have my own freedom. But it's addictive. Eventually, you know, if you don't like it, you, you're not able to do so. So, and, and if you like it, you enjoy the bad things and the good things. So to those individuals that listen to us and decide to take the path and being entrepreneurs, what will be the one or two smart advices that you give them to start their uh, way? I think that the biggest one will be this is decision that will change your life. And there is no way back in a way. Okay. So eventually you need to like it. You need to understand that you need to be committed to that. It's like having a kid, right? I mean, I can't currently return it to anyone and say, okay, I mean, this is not what I intend. It's, I mean, doing too much noise. I mean, I don't have free time. It is what it is. And I always say that papaya is my first kid, actually. It's not my third kid because it's the only kid or it's the only responsibility I cannot hand over to anyone else at any specific time. It will always be under my responsibility. So I think that you need to be in a place and in a period in life where you are able to take this commitment and you want it. 
it's not let's just try, see how it goes, let's do it on, on the free time, uh, and so on. This is a huge commitment. This is the only thing that I think this is the sole decision. Are you able or do you want to make the commitment? If you don't make the commitment and you fail, failing is a very, very bad experience. We, we, we don't start things in order to fail. But I think that if you don't take the full commitment, most likely you're going to fail. So just avoid it. You probably experience, as all of us, the fight for talents nowadays. How do you make people come to Papaya? How do you make people want to join you as opposed to the so many opportunities they have in the market today? So I think every company needs to maintain their own DNA. You need to have a story and you need to, I think that you need to have people that believe in the story, believe in the vision and feel connected to the people and to the company vision. And it's hard because first it needs to be authentic. It needs to be genuine. You, you cannot just copy paste things that work for Netflix and say, oh, I'm like Netflix, come work for me. And you need to fight for the talents, but you also need to assure that they understand what is the opportunity for them. I think that today's world is all about what is in it for me. Even if not today, tomorrow morning, how my career is going to look like and I'm going to be a, somebody that can impact the organization and so on. So you need to assure that eventually you provide the people the opportunity. And it's not easy and not all of the talents that we want choose to work with us and this is perfectly fine. But I think that we are trying to assure that we are empowering our people and even candidates can understand or feel this from others because eventually it's not about what I'm going to say. It's about what my employees will tell others because they are the one that will bring the new employees. They are the power that will eventually create the growth of the company. So very true. Maybe a personal question just before we kind of wrap up. Are you happy? Yes. Trying to keep happy. I mean, as, as a motto in life. So yeah. Great. Enas, it was a pleasure uh, hosting you. I enjoyed speaking to you, understanding a bit more about the topic, but also hearing about your own personal journey and the journey of Papaya. And thank you very much for uh, taking part of this episode. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.